You're listening to Formby Podcast. In this podcast, we're at St Peter's Church. We're listening to an organ recital and a talk by David Holroyd about the pipe organ at St Peter's Church. Good evening, everybody. They're in good form, David. No, they're not. They've gone very quiet on me. You are all very welcome, St. Peter's. Uh, for those of you who don't understand who I am in Mufti, I am Anne, and I'm the vicar here. Um, and this is the first of our celebration events for this church uh, being 275 years old. And this particular church, St. Peter's, has been in Formby a lot longer than that. But we are celebrating being in this location and the worship and the community that have been here for 275 years, as well as looking ahead to the next 275 years. But most of all, a huge thank you to David, who, apart from Jill being his assistant, is uh, producing his one-man show tonight uh, and letting you know everything you need to know about our fantastic church organ and indeed our fantastic organist. So David, it is over to you.
Thank you, and good evening. Um, do remind me to turn this off, because if I go over there and say anything to my page-turner, you don't need to hear it. <laughs> that piece was written by Mendelssohn and was called The War March of the Priests, and it gave me a chance to show the huge variety and colour which our lovely instrument possesses. A pipe organ is something of a cross between a synthesizer and a symphony orchestra. And despite what you might see when you look at the keyboards, it's actually nothing like a piano, really. That's another story, perhaps for a whole demonstration and concert another night. There's basically a chamber here on the north side of the chancel. And at least a third of it sticks out beyond that wall of the church. And there was the problem for the two previous instruments. The sound really only goes straight across into that chapel. And it wasn't really much use helping you folk singing down there. The first one was powered by a hydraulic motor, and the on-off switch was literally a tap. And there's bits of it still in a little crypt underneath this chamber that were discovered when this was rebuilt in 2002. That first organ was built by a 29-year-old local builder called Franklin Lloyd. He trained with the very famous um, organ builder, Henry Willis, but the organ was unimaginative and it didn't have enough power to drive the congregation effectively. After a long process, during which it was more or less agreed it wasn't up to the job and it had failed a couple of times, funds were raised and a new organ was provided. Along the way, they tried out a newfangled electronic thing called a Hammond organ, but fortunately decided that the old failing organ was better, which doesn't say much for the Hammond. The new one was provided in the church as the church's birthday present to itself for the 200th anniversary of the church. It was dedicated in 1949 as a memorial for those who died during World War II. It wasn't a thing of beauty. The pipes stuck up above the casework, and very soon people were bemoaning its lack of power, its lack of variety, and its lack of flexibility. Given another 50 years, with the church's 250th anniversary on the horizon, discussions began to improve that instrument and replace its failing innards. After much consideration, again discussion about a digital electronic organ, it was decided to push the boat out and go for what amounted to a new instrument. By way of respecting the previous war memorial, it reused some of the existing pipes, but to all intents and purposes, this was a brand new instrument, brand new workings, brand new pipes, um, mostly, and more importantly, a new solution to getting the sound out of the chamber and down into the church, which is that little window above the pulpit. There'll be a display during the Heritage Week telling you a lot more, probably parked about here. Do come to the Heritage Week. So, the ancient ancestor of the organ was a water-powered machine called a hydraulis, invented by some chap who I can't pronounce in Alexandria. It was basically a reservoir of air stuck in a tank of water, and the air was pushed into the reservoir with pumps and came out under pressure through the pipes. It was rudimentary, in effect, basically panpipes on a large scale. So the first essential for an organ is wind. And before electricity came along, an organ was pumped by hand using a set of bellows, basically like the old-fashioned thing you would use for spicing up the flames when you're making horseshoes, like we all do. Um, and it was blown by hand, and the organist probably had to keep friendly with his assistant to make sure he kept the wind up much in the way that I need to keep Jill sweet this evening in case she turns over two pages at once. 
She's only ever done that once. <laughs> Sometimes it took several fellas to blow a big instrument. And then electricity came along, um, and we've got back there um, basically an electric motor. It's only a small motor, um, and if you've ever skipped to the loo, um, that's what the noise is you can hear. It's sitting in a, a cupboard above the door into the sacristy. And this machine dates from 1930, when that old hydraulic equipment was replaced. Touch wood, it only seems to need a drop or two of oil once every year or so. And that turns basically a large fan that then pushes air into the instrument. You can think of it as a glorified hairdryer, if you like, but without the heat. Lots of organs suffer from lack of wind when you test them with big, loud, sustained chords like I had at the end of that piece. But I've never managed to make this one wheeze, which says a lot about what was done in 2002, as much as it does about that 1930 blowing equipment approaching its centenary. From the, from the fan, it goes through a load of series of tubes into a temporary storage um, container, just in there, called a reservoir. It's not much different from the bag on a set of bagpipes. That's the reason why bagpipes can carry on making their noise, even when the piper stops to breathe. The trunking for getting the wind around the instrument's nothing fancy. It's often wood, but in the case of a modern instrument like this, it's nothing more fancy than commercial drain pipe. And the air is stored in these reservoirs. That's not actually ours, but you can see them here inflated. They're made of wood, top and bottom, with leather um, in between to make them flexible. That's ours. It's only a small one because we don't need a great deal of wind. Um, in some instruments, there'll be several of these supplying different sections. And if the organs spread around in different parts of a building, obviously there'll be, there'll be lungs in each part. There are lead weights on top to give us the air pressure, um, and some are light pressure and some are heavy pressure, depending on how much noise it needs to make. This is all starting to sound like the organ is just some machine, then you're not wrong. There are some musicians who claim it isn't even musical, it's just a machine. But that's either because they've heard it played badly, which it often is, or they're jealous that no less a chap than Mozart called it the king of instruments. So, talking of machines, let's just listen to a short selection of pieces which Haydn wrote for a mechanical clock. You didn't remind me to turn the microphone off, did you? <laughs>
Sorry, just waiting for the computer to capture it. Now, once you've got wind, <laughs> pardon me, once you've got wind, you need to do something with it. And from the reservoir, it goes into what's called a wind chest. And there it simply sits until the organist lets it loose to make beautiful music. This is the wind chest for our bottom keyboard, and it sits just behind these pipes. And there it is before it had all the pipes stuck on. You can see there's lots of little holes. Each of one accommodates a pipe. Bear that in mind, because towards the end, I'm going to ask you how many pipes there are inside this thing. I know the answer. And Wendy knows the answer from last time I did this, so keep quiet. And you can see there's quite a few. Here's some of the pipes standing on that wind chest just behind in there. In the very smallest of organs, there's probably only two or three sets of pipes. Um, and you can see here that they're different shapes and sizes, indeed different materials. There's wood, there's metal. And each set of pipes is called a rank. And they stand there to attention, um, ranked from tallest to smallest. And we call a set of similar pipes a stop. And each one has specific sound characteristics. You'll have heard different sounds in the Mendelssohn and in that Haydn. And the word stop, bizarrely, comes from the very earliest days when you used a lever to stop the pipes from sounding. These days, we call the stop knob to turn the sound on. The hey-ho. And there are two types of organ pipe. There's a flue and a reed. And the flue is basically what it says. It's a chimney. By the way, this isn't from ours. So you're not going to have a gap meter. It's basically a chimney. It has a mouth and lips, indeed. And inside there, in fact, it has a tongue. So it's a bit like a recorder or a penny whistle, where it has um, a mouth and then the pipe. And the wind goes in here from the organ. It hits that edge, and it makes the air in there vibrate. And you get the sound of an organ pipe. I shouldn't do this, because it's almost pure lead. It's like something coming up the Brimersey. And there you can see the different bits that I just measured, I just mentioned. So this is a real one. Here's the foot, sits on the chest, there's the mouth, and the air goes up the pipe. Okay. There's three different types of flue pipe. Where can I put that? The principal, which is the main one of the organ, actually like that one. Um, and it gives the main sound. And it sounds something like this. Keep been practicing. <laughs> um, the length of the pipe determines the pitch. In other words, a low note. Oh, I'll turn this off. A low note or a high note. And a simple way to remember this is the bigger, the lower. And this is nothing different from an organ pipe, really. You blow it and the air vibrates. So small one, high note. Bigger one, lower note. Very big one. It was fun getting this one ready. <laughs> you probably can't hear it. I have been practicing. Anyway, believe me. Can you hear it just trying to sing? That's a very low note. So the bigger the pipe, 
the more air there is, the slower the vibration and the lower the note. Here's a close-up of one of our shiny front pipes. Um, and you can see the mouth, and you can probably just see the slot where the air comes up, and then the upper lip where the vibration takes place. These pipes are made of really beautiful spotted metal. has a very specific proportion of lead and tin to make the attractive shine and the spotting. If you get proportions wrong, you get dull, boring pipes like that one. It's about 60% tin. The more tin, the shinier the pipe, the brighter the sound, the more lead, the cheaper it is to make. There's another view of that same one. And here's a picture. I don't know how on earth I got my camera inside there, looking up the pipe at the roof. OK, so now I'm going to play something using these principal pipes only. And it's by that well-known chap, Anonymous. Short and sweet. Um, so they're the principal pipes. We also have what we call flutes. They're either wood or metal. They're generally quieter. They come in lots of variations of shapes and sizes. And we don't have many flutes here, but this one is particularly lovely. Could you just play a scale for me? So a softer, gentler sound, all to do with the internal shape of the pipes and harmonics and all sorts of boring physics. The physics lesson comes later. Um, I think I've got to play again, haven't I? Um, right, here's a charming little piece by a fellow called Pietro Jong, um, and it's called Humoresque, um, or Toccatina for the flutes, and it uses only um, two or three of those flutes.
Sorry, just waiting for the computer again. Okay. So, size matters. Um, we need to consider the fact that a pipe can only play one note, just as those bottles only play one note. Unlike my recorder, which can play Ooh. a few. Obviously, I can't move my fingers along the pipes inside there while I'm playing. And just as the recorder can't play more than one note at a time, no matter how hard I try, stick with one note, and it can't play chords either, neither can an organ pipe. So how can I play scales with lots of notes, and indeed even chords? Could you give us a scale or two? A, a, a slide? No, 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 up the keyboard. Anyone on the right-hand side, that'll do. No, on the, there we go. So, I can play scales all the way up and down. I can play chords as well. So how is this possible? Well, the answer is there's more than one. There's um, a pipe for each note. So I've already showed you the bottles. Um, inside there are, in effect, lots of bottles. The actual pitch that a pipe sounds is determined by the length of the biggest pipe of that set. If the bottom note, which we call C on a keyboard, has a pipe eight feet long, it sounds this note. The same as the key when I play it on the piano. So an eight foot long pipe in the organ will sound the same as what I'm expecting from the piano. The longest one of these is not quite that one in the middle, because it wouldn't fit. It's behind. There, that's the top of it bent round to make it fit. The one, on the, uh, the one on the right there is eight feet long by the time it's been twisted. It's slightly shorter, neighbour about seven and a half feet long, bent round to fit in there. They just wouldn't fit at the front. A bend in a pipe is called a mitre. I wonder if Bishop Bev knows that her fancy hat is actually called the same thing as a bent organ pipe. <laughs> the biggest pipes in some organs could be 32 feet long. The one in the middle there in Liverpool Cathedral is actually 32 feet from the mouth to the top. You probably don't realise that in the building because the building's so flipping huge anyway. So now, physics. If you want to go to sleep, you've got five minutes. If an eight-foot pipe sounds at what we call concert pitch, what do you think that 32-foot pipe does? Well, if you double the length of a pipe, you halve the speed of the vibration and the pitch goes down what we call an octave. So that will be a 16-foot pipe. Double it again to 32 feet, and I'm going to go down half the speed of the vibrations again, go down another octave to this, which hardly sounds a note, sounds like a note. In fact, in the cathedral, you can't really detect it as a note. You just feel the air shudder. So. The bottom note of our eight-foot pipe inside there is called C. The bottom note of a 16-foot pipe, also called C, is that. And as I said, 32-foot would be further down. Our biggest pipe, could you just, and this is going off script, 
Could you pull that one out and play that bottom note? That's our biggest pipe. Can you hear it? Just about. Um, thank you. Um, calls itself 16 feet. But actually, there's another trick up our sleeves to make these things fit. Never mind by it, by bending pipes around corners. We can also stick a stopper in the top. I think you can see the stoppers in those pictures there. The stopper makes the sound wave travel double the distance because it has to go down and back again. So the pipe vibrates at half the speed and the note is an octave lower. So that note you just heard calls itself a 16-foot pipe, but is actually an 8-foot pipe with a stopper in the top. Safe space changes the sound as well. So um, there is the mouth of our 16-foot pipe, which is actually 8-foot long. Um, and you can just make, the, make out the slot where the air comes up, then hits the top. And to give you an idea of the size of it, there's my index finger just on the lip of it. So it's about that big. The biggest one in Liverpool Cathedral, you could climb in and stand inside. Scary idea. Okay, so let's give your brains a rest and get away from the physics to the first real big piece of organ music, Bach's famous Toccata and Fugue in D minor, perhaps the most famous piece of all organ music ever written. Um, I'm afraid to tell you that people think it may not have been written by Bach. It probably wasn't written for the organ, and nor was it in the key of D minor. <laughs> but apart from that, now I'm confused. Are you looking at the computer or the camera? No, you're not. Back to the camera. Okay, so Bach's very famous Toccata and Fugue in D minor.
so. The third variety of chimney is called a string. Um, it's actually basically the same as that pipe, but just narrower, and so it gives a thinner, um, more keen sound. Essentially, it's a narrow width principle. I suppose you could call it a variant, but I'm sure we're all sick to death of that word, so I'll just stick and call it a variety of pipe. Strings are usually relatively quiet, like this. Thank you. Sometimes there's a set of pipes deliberately tuned slightly out of tune with the rest. Um, could you give us that one? Yep. And then you're on with it. That one. And just hear how it slightly undulates. That um, set of pipes slightly out of tune is sometimes called Vox Angelica, the voice of an angel. If the angels always sing out of tune, it's going to get a little bit tiresome halfway through to eternity. <laughs> but it gives a very characteristic sort of shimmery organ sound. And I'm going to play um, a piece by the French organist Louis Vienne, um, who actually died while he was playing the organ, so I don't want to follow too many of his examples, <laughs> um, called Berceurs, which means lullaby. Another chance for you to catch up on your sleep.
So going back to the different lengths of pipes, um, if we played from the bottom up, you would hear all the different lengths come into action. So um, here is the sound at the bottom of a 16-foot. Sorry, yeah, that one. And work its way up, sounding an octave lower than the natural sound on the piano. Now, I've done the lower ones. If I had a pipe four feet long, um, it would sound an octave higher. So instead of it sounding this note, the bottom note would sound this note. And everything is an octave higher, and we'll go up rather more. We've got one on here that has its bottom pipe two feet, what's about that, two feet long, and gradually goes up to the very top of the organ where the pipe is about that long, probably about three quarters of an inch. Um, a set of pipes, as I said before, is called a rank, and as I've already said, we need one pipe for every note. So here, there's 58 pipes per rank, per stop, because there's 58 keys on the keyboard. If you have a look at many in organ case, you'll see them in a sort of symmetrical shape, an inverted sort of arch, a bit like that. Here's the pipes in the section at the back before the organ was finished, and you can sort of see that symmetrical shape coming from tall inwards. And there's a, a very practical reason for that, um, and I wonder if anybody's got a clue. It's very simple. If you put all the heavy pipes this side and all the light pipes that side, the organ would topple over. So it's simply to spread the weight. It looks very nice too, but it's actually very practical. So, what's the second type of pipe? I mentioned the flues, and if you were observant on an... Uh, remember, I used to be a teacher. Um, if you were observant on an earlier slide, you would have seen the second type. I didn't mention it, but the second type is called a reed. And what's the difference between the flues and the reeds? Well, the flue is a vibrating column of air, and the reed um, is a vibrating tongue of metal. Um, now, borrowing my wife's clarinet, it makes its noise with this little piece of literally reed at the top. And you blow on that, and the air pressure makes it buzz. <coughs> Sorry. And that basically is the reed, and inside there we have a few reeds um, that work like that. Um, I'm not even going to try and play the rest of it, but by using all these fingers and things, um, I can make different notes and play tunes. In there, of course, we need one pipe for each different note, and each of them has their own little reed made of metal, not reed. On the simplest level, I meant to do this because the boys at school used to love this, when I talked about um, vibrations. And if you go and pick one of those big, thick pieces of grass and sandwich it between your fingers and blow, that's the same thing as the clarinet, the same thing as the metal inside there. So next time you're cutting the grass, get a big piece, put it between your finger, and you get that awful noise, and that's how the organ reeds work. Um, I didn't dare go and remove one of these, because first of all, I'd need a big one to show you, and they're susceptible to temperature change, so you shouldn't really handle them. At the bottom of these pipes, you can see their boot, where it goes into the wind chest to collect the air. Um, and you could perhaps also make out that these are also bent around um, and mitered to make them fit. Again, if you've ever been in the sacristy, behind all the ladders and the clutter that Steve leaves in there, um, there's a door which goes into the back of the organ. These days, you can't get in there because it's got all these pipes 
standing in front of it. Um, and again, they're bent because the roof isn't high enough. Um, and here, if you take the boot off, is what you'd see. The reed, um, or the shallot as it's called, is that little thin strip of metal, um, the thin sliver that actually vibrates. There's a little wedge of wood that holds it into the pipe, and then that little wire which adjusts it and tunes it, um, which goes upwards on the tuner, knocks it up and down to adjust it. There's lots of different shapes and sizes of reeds, and that affects the sound that they make, determines the quality or the tone colour, the timbre, if you like. Think how different a clarinet is from an oboe, or a saxophone, or a bassoon, or indeed even bagpipes. It's all the shape of the, the, the pipes um, and so on that make the difference. So we have, I need to go back to the organ, we have um, four, only four reeds on this instrument, and they all contribute either as solos or as um, part of the overall chorus. So we've got one that adds nicely up here. And this pipe is eight feet long. I've got another one where that pipe is 16 feet long and not very polite. louder one that calls itself a trumpet down here and again this pipe is eight feet long four feet two feet one foot six inches quite small and then down here a 16 foot pipe called a trombone. You don't tend to use it on its own because it's not a very pretty sound. And here you can almost hear the individual um, clanging around of the reed because it's so slow. It's about 16 vibrations a second. Anyway, now a piece of proper music using some of these reed things. Um, a famous trumpet voluntary which quite often gets played at weddings by Jeremiah Clark.
Now this is where it gets complicated. <laughs> As things stand, every single pipe would start to play as soon as wind is provided. And so the wind chest underneath the pipes is, div div di try again, is divided into compartments. Compartments running that way and compartments running that way. And when you draw a stop, when you pull one of those knobs out, it controls something called a slider. And the slider is sandwiched between the upper board and the lower board, and it moves. So there you can see when the stop is off, the air can't get up because the bit of green stuff is in the way. Whereas underneath, once the slide has moved, once the slide has slid, um, the air can get through. So that's how you turn on the individual pipes. The slider blocks off the wind to all the trumpet, or all the flute, or all the um, cornopean, or whatever the different things are called. And so the green line there is when the air gets allowed underneath that set of pipes. But then when I press a key, that opens a little valve in the red pipe direction. And so if I play an A, it lets air into the A channel. So if I've got the trumpet turned on and I press an A, then I get the A on the trumpet pipe sounding. It is complicated. I think I knew what I meant. So these knobs that we've got either side of the organ operate the sliders. They're called stops, as I said before, because they used to use them to turn off the pipes. Now we use them to turn on the pipes. Um, it could be mechanical, and so you pull one of the knobs out and it literally sends a load of levers working, or it could be electric. These ones are actually electric. Here's a quick little picture backstage. I pull one of those knobs at the front, it moves a rod, and then off it goes electrically to shift a solenoid that moves the slider inside. The actual connection from my fingers on the keys to the pipes could be um, mechanical or electrical or pneumatic, little pipes with air in, and as the air pressure changes, it makes things happen, or electro-pneumatic. Um, this one is mechanical, which is the best and the nicest to play. If I took the music desk away, that's what you'd see. At the back end of every key is a little lever, and they open the valves, which are called pallets, open the valves underneath the pipes. When you depress a key, even this little tiny amount, you only move the key a quarter of an inch or so, it's enough to make all sorts of things happen. But it's quite complicated what's backstage. I'll show you another picture in a minute. Um, this is perhaps the most ideal combination you've got. Mechanical for your fingers and then electrical components. So backstage again, behind the organ, behind where I play, is all these rods. But I've only got that much keyboard, and yet the pipes stretch from there to there, because obviously they're big. And so those levers, some of them have to go this way, and some of them have to go that way. It's amazing they don't get lost. Um, and it's called a rollerboard, that thing you can see at the moment, and it spreads the movement of the keys all across the instrument, because you've got a heavy pipe, and then the next pipe, and then the next pipe, and the next pipe, as I said before, to distribute the weight. That thing, the rollerboard, was invented about 600 years ago, I think, and it sort of made all sorts of things possible. It's really very delicate, that mechanism in there, and yet it's really very fulfilling to play. Okay, 
I'm sure the wine is probably warmed up because it's been sitting on the radiator. So it's almost time. Let's hear something again that needs lots of colour and variety. As well as flying fingers, you might have noticed me attacking the stop knobs left and right. And although Jill always thinks it's just an excuse for playing wrong notes when you're grabbing for something else, you'll hear a large palette of tone colour. This is a piece called Fantasy by Saint-Saëns. When I was the surprise preacher back in November, some of you might remember, I referred to the fact that pieces of music tend to have three lines. The top one for the right hand, the next one down for the left hand, and the bottom one for the feet. I mentioned a piece of music that had four lines, and here it is. I didn't elaborate on whether I used my nose or something, but actually it's intended for an organ with three keyboards. Um, so the top keyboard is the top line, the middle keyboard is the middle line, uh, second line, the third line is the bottom keyboard, and the bottom one is your feet. This should be fun because I've only got two keyboards. And once I've got through this, I think we'll all deserve a glass of wine.
Okay, so far so good. We've got wind, we've had flues, reeds, pipes of all sorts of shapes and sizes sounding at all sorts of different pitches. But how is it all controlled? Well, you've already seen really, it's the flight deck, if you like. It's called the console. Um, and if you see a big organ, it is a bit like the flight deck on an aircraft. Um, although this is, as they go, as organs go, fairly small and straightforward, um, it's a bit obvious, I suppose, that the bigger the instrument, the bigger the flight deck. And we've got two keyboards for the hands. The top one is called the swell, and the bottom one is called the grate. And they control a completely different set of pipes. The great ones are the ones I sort of pointed to before, which are just behind the front, and the swell is in a box at the back. Um, and they have different combination of um, ranks of pipes and different characteristics. I'll demonstrate that again in a moment. That's Liverpool Cathedral. It's got rather more to control. <laughs> there are lots of different possible names from the different keyboards, such as the great and the swell that we've got. At the bottom there is the choir and the positive. On the fourth one up is the solo. On the top one is the bombard, the echo and the corona, and just to name a few. There's nine sections of that organ. This isn't Liverpool Cathedral, but here you can sort of see how the pipes are contained within different areas. So you've got um, probably the grate at the top, and possibly a positive, it might be called, underneath, and the big fellas at the side would be the big heavyweight pipes for your feet. Liverpool Cathedral has got four organ cases to each side, um, and they've got pipes in the middle of the nave to make the congregation sing. They're going to have pipes above the altar, altar and there's talk of having pipes on the bridge. So there's at least nine sections controlled from those five manuals. Now, you might have seen chopping and changing from one keyboard to another um, to get the different tones and qualities. But occasionally, there are pieces of music where each keyboard is used individually. When I did the trumpet um, piece by Jeremiah Clark, the trumpet was on the bottom one. Um, so this short piece um, is a trio sonata by Bach, three lines of music. In the normal, sensible world of music, not in the loony bin world of organists, this would be played by, say, a flute and a violin and a cello. Three individual players. This is proof again, as I said in that sermon, why an organist has to have some very specific, weird, peculiar wiring in their brains. Because I'm now going to be three people at once. Oh. Can you, is the camera on? No. But it could be because it's off. Is the camera on? Yes. Thank you.
brings a new sense to the phrase split personality. So, St. Peter's organ looks pretty modest in comparison to some, but each instrument is designed for the space that it lives in. Indeed, the building is often half of the instrument, so Liverpool Cathedral's monster was designed to fill that monstrous building. This wonderful little instrument is just perfect in here. Now, our two keyboards, as I said before, are called great and swell. The lower one is the great. All the pipes are standing in the open, just behind these front pipes, so you hear them just as they are. The upper keyboard is called the swell, for the very reason that we can swell the sound. Now, we didn't actually practice this one, so I'll do it myself. Hopefully you heard that the sound swelled. Let's just do it again. If you can see my foot, as, and you can't see my foot because I'm not on the camera, but I promise you my right foot is using the thing in the middle. So the top keyboard here is called the swell because I can swell the sound. And how do I do that? Well, that's because the pipes are inside a box, literally a big box, um, at the back, with shutters, a bit like a Venetian blind. In most organs, the swell box is not visible, because they're not terribly pretty. This one is Blackburn, Blackburn Cathedral. Probably the best organ I've ever played, and half of that is because of the building. It's a wonderful place, and it's a wonderful organ. So there, um, as I've indicated, um, is the box, and you can see that the shutters, the louvres, are open, like a Venetian blind. And there's a pedal um, on the organ. When you manipulate it, it moves those shutters. So here are our shutters at the back of the chamber, closed. You can just see the, the, the red felt that helps the soundproofing. So they're closed tight, and the sound is a bit like a caged lion waiting to be released. Here, open just a little bit, so some of the sound comes out. Like a Venetian blind, open it a little bit, a little bit of wind, a little bit of wind, a little bit of um, light will come through. Here it is, almost wide open, and lots of sound can get out. And here are some of the pipes inside there. I showed you those before with that typical shape standing in their ranks. Um, you've actually heard me use that swell quite a lot in the music, when the music comes forward or then shrinks. Now you know why. Um, here's some of the noisy stuff, um, which are just in front of the shutters. So that's how the noise from those ones penetrates. You can just see the red felt on those shutters there, and some more. Now, when this organ was built to replace the previous incarnation, one of the issues, as I said, was that the sound only went over there. Um, because basically that's a square brick, and the only hole was here. One of the brain waves during that rebuild in 2002 was this little window, as I pointed out, above the pulpit. The picture you've got at the moment is looking from the other side, looking out. Um, you can just about make out the, the shape of that window at the back with the light streaming through. I don't know how on earth they managed to get permission to do that to a grade two listed building, um, but I suppose because it matches the shape of the other round oval windows, 
and they got away with it, but a piece of pure genius because it lets the organ sing right down the church as well. Okay, so you've seen me using the upper and lower keyboards, but I've not mentioned yet that we can actually combine them um, so that um, the two play together. You might have noticed when it was on the camera that some of the keys at the top were moving of their own accord. Um, that wasn't a ghost. Um, it's because of something called a coupler, so that when the stops for the top manual are initiated, I can play them by using the bottom keyboard. This is so we get a fuller sound amalgamating the resources of both keyboards. You don't always do that. That trio sonata, they were independent. But a lot of the time, you join them together. It's not just about volume, it's about colour as well. But obviously, to get the biggest sounds, we need to use everything. Now, backstage again. Um, those three devices are electrically driven solenoids, which do the joining of the keyboards together. So it's sort of electrically assisted mechanical action. So when I press a key, it joins the two keyboards, or when I press something with my foot, it joins the keyboards. So could you just pull out one of those? Did you hear a slight clunk? Could you pull the next one? And the next one? Okay, I've, maybe it doesn't carry down the church. I've never wondered about that, but certainly the choir and the vicar must wonder what these clunks and crunches are every so often. So now if you get all three of them cancelled at one go, so you probably hear that on a Sunday. It doesn't mean I'm bored with what's going on. It means I'm either cancelling stuff after one piece or getting ready for the next. And it's because it's mechanically done. So I've talked about the two keyboards, but I've not really touched on the fact that there's an oversized set of keys downstairs. And you've already seen that obviously they're operated by the feet. It's exactly the same layout, it's just they're not black and white, but you've got the three and then the two the three and then the two of what we normally call black keys. They're called pedals, and they provide the underpinning base of the harmony most of the time, be it a simple hymn or be it a complicated thing like the Bach you heard before. Just occasionally they have a life of their own. In fact, in the Bach and um, Fugue in D minor, you might have seen just occasionally the sort of... Oh, it's gone off. Um, my feet did a few things on their own. I'm going to play four of the variations written by George Thelburn Ball on that famous tune by Paganini. Um, there's about ten of them, and one, they're quite tricky, and two, they get quite boring. So I'm going to play four of them. Um, okay, that's the famous tune. How many notes do you think you can play with your feet? Well, one with each, but actually, in this piece, four at a time. Let's wait and see if it actually happens. <laughs>
much like hard work. <laughs> you might have noticed that I sometimes grab at the stop knobs to change the sounds, but there are some other little bits of kit which I suppose you could say is a bit like power-assisted steering, which are the little buttons underneath each keyboard. And even on a small instrument like this, these little buttons are very helpful. There's some more above um, the pedals that I think you can see in the picture. You push one of these and a preset selection of stops comes out or goes in. It's a bit like having a particular shade of, shall we say, red um, on your artist's palette. So you get the particular sound um, combinations you like and you might have seen me stabbing at some of those to change the colours. So you can see the front pipes that we call the facade. But where's the rest and how do you get to them? Well, there's a little panel just there. It's about that wide and that tall and organ builders can't be too big if they want to get inside. It's just here to the left of the cockpit, if you like. And when I say small, there's my foot against it. And inside's a ladder, and that takes you up to these pipes at this level. I'm not sure why they're there, to be honest, but they're some of the trumpety things, and again, you can see they're twisted round. I talked about the um, drain pipe. Here's lots of drain pipe carrying the air around. And those black things at the back, I wondered what they were when I first saw inside there. They're actually three of the various biggest pipes. And never mind bending them, these ones have to lie down to fit. And that's probably the very low note that Jill played before. Um, there's the mouth of it. Okay, so you see all this, but behind it is this. These are some of the great pipes in their various different shapes and sizes. Only about half of them in that picture, but less than half in that picture. Don't forget, you've got to tell me how many pipes there are in there later on. I've talked about how big they can be, going from the bottom of the 16-foot-long the trombone up to the very top of the 2-foot one, which is very squeaky. Actually, could you just play me the very top of the squeaky one? The 15. I've changed my mind. Yes, I have. So now just slide up on the grate. On the grate. On the bottom keyboard. On here. There we go. So there you go. No, it's not somebody's hearing aid. Play it again. Play that top note again, please. Right. That's the pipe about this long. Yes, it can be painful. You don't use it on its own. And so there, in fact, are some of those tiny pipes. And in that picture, I think you can see the really tiniest, probably the working bit of it, half an inch long. It may have had a foot like this to get at the air, but that bit is the bit that does the, does the noise. Okay, so how many pipes are there? Anybody want to hazard, hazard a guess? 190. 190, okay. 170. 174, we're being very precise. No, it, it's not an auction. <laughs> okay. Well, you can do a little bit of maths while I'm playing the next piece. Um, I've said each stop needs 58 pipes, because um, there's 58 black and white keys on the swell and the grate. There's a total of 21 different stops, but it's not that easy because there's only 30 down below for the pedals. It's not a simple piece of maths, because some stops have more than one pipe per note, and they're called mixtures. They're a fundamental part of the organ sound. They add brightness and clarity low down. They add reinforcement at the top where it's a bit weaker. And they play three pipes at a, at a, at a time. Um, let me show you. 
So I'm going to play the bottom note on the swell. And that's actually sounding three pipes. And all the way up are three pipes. And there's another one over here. So that just confuses your maths, doesn't it? And those mixtures add nice brightness. And we've got three, one on the swell, one on the grate. And then the funny thing that the poster mentioned that somebody asked me about, the sesquialtra, come to that later. So now another little bit of um, energetic playing, um, Bach's jig fugue, um, which uses all these mixtures. And you just hear the characteristic sort of um, organ sound that Bach writes for.
don't know who'd choose this music. I wish you'd chosen some slow stuff. <laughs> so, how many pipes are there? Probably more than you're expecting. <laughs> I'll tell you at the end. <laughs> and then there's this peculiar stop called the sesquialtera, which comes from um, Latin, I think, and it means the ratio of a sixth. Um, and it plays two notes at a time and provides a very piquant sort of sound. It goes very well as a solo on its own, which is I'm going to use it in a moment, um, or as a solo. Um, and it's quite a strange thing, because if I play a C, I play a C, it's actually going to sound the G and the E above it. So I play C, it plays G and C, G and E. And you add it to everything else, and it just adds a piquancy. It's actually um, the truth that the organ was the world's earliest synthesizer. And the true pipe organ, I suppose, provided the science, if you like, behind that abomination, the Hammond organ that I mentioned before. Because the variety of tone color and the timbre that I keep referring to is all to do with the way you combine the different stops and their harmonics and the overtones that the pipes produce. Back to physics, I think we'll leave it there and how we use them. So here is, it's called a cornet voluntary um, because um, the cornet consists of, let's see, if I play C, you're gonna hear C, C, G, E, and another G. So I'm gonna play one note and you're gonna hear all these notes. Okay, and it gives a nice spicy sound to this voluntary. Sorry, keep remembering to turn myself off.
uh, not only does this organ beautifully play stuff like that, which was written in the 18th century um, for an organ, probably without pedals, um, and it does it beautifully, it can also replace, almost replace, a symphony orchestra. And here, to show you the colours of it again, um, is Elgar's wonderful Nimrod.
and even with only 21 pipe stops, I think it does something like that really quite nicely. So, how many pipes are there? 1,312. And when the organ tuner comes to tune it, he has to tune every single one. And if you hear an organ being tuned, it's a fairly dire experience. <laughs> Not least because they go across this side and that side, so they don't play nice scales. They play them. Because they're working up how the pipes are distributed. Um, if you go to Liverpool Cathedral two days a month, you'll hear them tuning because Liverpool Cathedral's got, to the nearest number, 10,000 pipes. And they don't tune the whole thing, they tune a bit of it each month. That's it. You now know how many pipes are in it. Um, and it can play beautiful things like Nimrod, it can play trio sonatas, and you can also be a little disrespectful and make it sound like a fairground organ.
Enough. <laughs> well, if David thinks that's disrespectful, you haven't heard him when he's been here and he's had to play Madness Wham and Elton John on the organ. I have a habit of telling wedding couples he can play anything you know, which he will say as long as I've got the music. And it is true. David, thank you very much. Um, I hope you've enjoyed not only now better understanding our fabulous pipe organ, um, but also um, seeing the fabulous talent that David has and that we are so spoilt with here in St. Peter's. David, thank you. And also thank you to Jill in the background. <laughs> David did indeed preach a very good sermon for St. Cecilia's Day, who's the patron saint of music, and at the time I said, the only problem is I can't return the favour. Um, but uh, thank you, David. It's been a super evening. It's been a fabulous start to our 275th anniversary year. Uh, please do come back any time to any of the events, and sure, if you want to hear him or the odd sermon, you're welcome any Sunday. <laughs> I just hope he has enough energy left for tomorrow morning. I leave you with the last word. And um, I always insist that the music has the last word, so I never let the headmaster at school say thank you. I just let the music do it, but thank you, Anne, for saying thank you. But I have one more thing up my sleeve. However, you need to sponsor me. Because this piece hurts. Because when you join the two keyboards together, it's heavy. I mean, not stupidly heavy, but when you're moving your fingers along, it gets tiring. So I'm looking forward to the bit about three minutes in when this hand gets a go. Um, after the Takata and Fugue in D minor, it's probably the number two favourite piece of all time. Um, and I'm sure you paid not to get in, but donation um, to support the work that we're doing this year, the Flower Festival, for example. But if you'd like to pay more to get out, <laughs> that's sponsoring me to play this. It is, of course, Vido Staccato.
Formby Podcast is an independent production. It comes to you free. If you'd like us to tell your story, or you know of a story, contact us at formbypodcast at gmail.com. See you next time. Thank you.